It is the Healthy Family Show, and I am your host, Jenny Hatch. Today, I'm going to be reading an email that I sent to the Colorado State Board of Education yesterday. I am a member of FAIR Colorado as the and serve as the Boulder chapter leader. And I've also been tasked with be, being the state coordinator for FAIR in the Arts in Colorado. And I write our newsletter for FAIR Colorado. So I'm deeply involved in all of the elements of FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And I wrote this email to have my voice heard in the public record that's being re received and uh, posted online uh, by the State Board on people who are chiming in about the social studies standards. So first, a little bit of backstory. Over the last year or two, some educators came up with a new curriculum, K through 12, that included what I would term the most woke of probably any state in the union in terms of the curriculums they wanted to teach our children in their social studies classes around critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion curriculums. There were thousands of individuals, parents, educators who stood up and said these go too far. It's just too extreme. And we don't want we don't want these standards. When the board votes on the standards next week, they will be locked into place for six years. And so the parents who stood up and said we want some changes were listened to. And the board said that um, they would be open to revisions. So again, thousands of people stood up and chimed in and came up with what they felt was a, a reasonable approach to teaching these standards to our kids. And everyone agreed that kindergarten through fourth graders should probably be, um, I hate to use the word protected, but at least absolved from having to have the, the more extreme versions of these curriculums in their classroom. And so it was agreed that, that those would be in place, but that the fifth grade through 12th grade standards would largely stay as, as they were first um, presented. And I, you know, I have issues just with that because I really don't think these types of curriculums do our middle schoolers or the high schoolers any sort of favors. But that was what was agreed upon. And so a group rose up and said, no, we don't want the K through fourth graders to be excluded from these curriculums. We demand that you keep them as they were written. And so this has been the debate in Colorado for the last few months. And the state school board heard commentary last month in October from the from members of the community and members, mostly these two young women who um, came out and shared their stories and they were they were heart wrenching stories. Um, and I heard them, I heard their voices, I understand their concerns. And so as we are trying to figure out what to do next, I decided to chime in with my own view with this letter. I'm disabled, so I, I can't go to the school board meeting and speak, but the board assured those of us who can't show up in person that our communications will be a matter of the public record. And so that's why I took the time to write this letter and make my video. So I'm going to share that in just a moment, but before then, I would like to share my history as an education activist because it gives you further um, 
depth and it shares the whole arc of my personal journey as a mother and now as a new grandmother. So when we moved to Boulder, Colorado, our real estate agent back in 1991 assured us that we were we were going to be a part of one of the most dynamic and wonderful school districts in the world. And I don't know if you are aware of this, but Boulder, Colorado, the county, has more PhDs than any other location in the world. And part of that is because of Colorado University, which is the school that, that is here in Boulder. But there are also some technology companies like Ball Aerospace and others that need PhDs as part of their teams. And so there are just many, many highly educated people in our county. And so I was excited. My kids were um, just at the age when you would want to send them to school for the first time. And I started hearing things at church from some of my fellow sisters in Relief Society about issues in the schools. One specifically mentioned how back in 1992, her daughter was being asked to write an essay on why she feels guilty for being white. And she felt like this was a problem and she, her daughter should not have been required to write that essay. And I was like, what's going on? And then there was a woman in our congregation who was a PE teacher and she was being fired for not going along with certain agendas. And she had been invited to come to a sensitivity training for educators. And again, this is 1992. So we're talking a full 30 years ago. She had been invited to come to one of these circles. I call them struggle sessions because they're very similar to Mao's uh, struggle sessions that he held back in China in the day where the people would be forced to report on themselves and self-incrimination. And then the people in the circle would browbeat them for not having the right views and being guilty of wrong think. This, this is incredibly toxic uh, stuff that, that is how the old Soviets used to control people. And um, here was this sensitivity training around uh, issues involving sexuality. And she was being asked to stand up and say, my name is such and such, and I'm a lesbian, just to show solidarity with fellow teachers. And she would not do it. She just said, I'm, I, you know, I'm not one, I'm not going to pretend to be one. And I just think this is ridiculous that you're asking me to do that. She was fired and ended up, ended her career as a substitute teacher working all over the district as a sub after being acknowledged as being one of the best PE teachers in the district. So I heard these stories and I was curious, you know, what's going on in Boulder? And I had read enough about phonics and early childhood reading programs to know that there were serious issues with the whole language curriculums. So I investigated it and come to find out that the elementary school where my daughter was supposed to start as a kindergartner was part of the whole language cult. And I do call them a cult because they have this almost um, zombie-like devotion to these curriculums. And when parents speak up and say, you know, I'd, I'd like my child to learn to read with phonics, uh, you get browbeaten and sit in the corner, bad mom, where the experts sit down, shut up, we're here to tell you what's what. And, and the claim has been made that these whole language curriculums are designed to create failure in a huge number of students. And that that has been the goal of modern education since the days of Dewey. He, he wanted, he was a socialist. He wanted a socialist society. 
and felt that the biggest impediment to him and his cohorts setting up this socialist paradise is that too many people in America knew how to read. At the time, there was like a 98% literacy rate in America, turn of the century, 20th century America. So they designed these curriculums that would ensure that about a third of our citizens would not be able to read. And, and by not being able to read, what I mean is these people could not go into a library, check out a nonfiction book, two inch thick nonfiction book, take it home, read it, retain a lot of what's in the book, and then take it back and get another one next week. They would be able to write a check. They would be able to write a thank you note. They would be able to participate in society to a certain degree of literacy, but to be an intellectual who can read and retain and communicate on what you've read, uh, no, they would not be able to do that because these curriculums cause dyslexia. And so that's the dirty little secret that's been a part of our culture for all these many years that nobody wants to talk about except certain people who are in the know. The media, the, the institutional powers that be stemming from Columbia University all the way down to the lowest little community college. Um, these agendas are in place and they've wrecked havoc on our society. So I've been someone agitating for real phonics my, the whole time. And honestly, it was the main reason we kept our oldest daughter home for two years because we just felt it would not serve her to go and be taught with the whole language, whole language curriculum. I love the other aspects of public education. I love the music. I love the collegiality of being part of a classroom and normal classroom competition and the wonderful things that happen when the children are eating together and participating in recess and just the feeling of being a part of something important in, in education. And so I, I love that side of public education, the, the open-heartedness of it, that this is the place where our little ones can go and learn how to be members of society. I love that. And I felt sorry that my oldest daughter was missing out. When she was in second grade, the local elementary set up what is called a thread of core knowledge curriculums. And the core knowledge curriculums, unlike the common core, which I think they named it that because they were trying to confuse people about what's what, but the core knowledge curriculums are a K through eight set of textbooks that were edited by E.D. Hirsch, and they were put together by some of the most dynamic and wonderful educators in America. And they were titled What Your Kindergartner Needs to Know, What Your First Grader Needs to Know, and on up through the eighth grade. And so the beauty of the Core Knowledge series is that your child sequences from first grade to second grade, and because the curriculum is seamless and fits together, Right through all those grades, they get this wonderful foundation of history and social studies, English, math. And I felt good about the curriculum. And then this elementary, this, this dynamic group of parents who set up this thread. And what a thread was, was in this particular um, school, they had a kindergarten through fifth grade class that were dedicated to core knowledge. The rest of the school had the regular BVSD curriculum, but these these threads um, were pretty much, you know, solid core knowledge. Saxon math, which is the best math curriculum on the market, and phonics, the open court phonics system, which is rock solid. I was so excited about this because I was just about to give birth to our fourth child. I was encumbered with little ones and how wonderful to be able to send my daughter to this new situation as a second grader. So we signed her up. And 
come to find out 10 of the children in her class are members of our church community. And she would be staying with the same group of kids all the way through fifth grade. Our second daughter and our oldest son also participated in this thread. And we were excited. This is, this is new, um, solid researched curriculum that many of the charter schools were using similar curriculums. And we were excited about it. And for four years, our family was a part of this situation. Because we were part of a school, I joined, I joined the local Moms in Touch group, which is a prayer group that, that meets locally to pray for our schools and their teachers. And uh, I was recruited on the, on the playground the first day of school by a fellow mom who wanted to invite me to come to her home and, and pray with her and other women. So I did. And I joined this group and I stayed a part of that group until, oh, I think it was right up until we moved to Utah in 2012. I, I went to Moms in Touch. And at these meetings, which were just once a month, um, I heard inside stories from other moms about what was happening in the district and particularly in our school. And some of the moms who are part of our group were founding families for a very dynamic charter school that our family eventually decided to attend. It was at one of these meetings where I heard that Boulder Valley was going to change its diversity policy. And the parents were concerned enough that a meeting had been planned at a local church for parents who were interested in speaking out at the school board meeting to meet together and find out what was really going on. So I went to this meeting and come to find out the pastor was my neighbor, Bob, who lived right down. We lived in a townhouse at the time. So two doors down, Bob and Bernice, these wonderful neighbors who I'd grown to love over the years we had been neighbors. I was not surprised to see that it was Pastor Bob who had hosted this meeting, but how joyful to reconnect with him and his wife who had, who had moved. And so I hadn't seen them as much. But um, at this meeting, I announced that I had already written my speech that I was planning to give. I said I was going to use extreme language to convey my thoughts and feelings on this change. And other parents said they were planning to come. And at, at, and at the actual meeting, my husband and I actually both spoke and uh, all of these other parents. And I think the school board was pretty shocked because up until that point, there had not been too many people um, expressing outrage over what they were planning to do with this diversity policy. And we felt that the policy that was in place with the school was solid and that if there were teachers or students who had issues around how they were being treated, that they should invoke the policy that was in play. And so when many of the kids who were being bullied came and spoke to the school board and told them their stories, uh, we felt that the school board should say things like, well, why is this the first time we're hearing this? Why wasn't it reported? Why didn't anybody do anything at the school? Because some of the stories that were shared were horrifying. And I, I believe those kids should have been given justice. But we felt that the diversity policy that was going to be put in play would give special rights to certain people and really... Um, was concerning to all of us who spoke out. So for some reason, my speech uh, twitched a nerve in the community and the Daily Camera, which is a local newspaper, reached out to me to come and interview as one of the parents who had spoken out. So I said, yes, you can come to my home. I had two little kids at home. My daughter was at school and um, I was interviewed by this reporter and a photograph was taken of me and my boys. And while he did fairly represent 
me and my views um, as being what he called strident. Um, the way he worded it made it sound like I was just a bigot who was overly concerned about uh, these issues. And so I ended up on the front page of the Daily Camera with this big picture of me and my boys and talking about this, this diversity issue. Uh, the blowback on me mostly was just some harassing phone calls, uh, quite harassing. One of them, my husband wouldn't even let me listen to. They left it on our answering machine. He said, you don't want to hear that. So he just deleted it. But that was it. It wasn't too bad. Um, not like some other parents have experienced, including someone who spoke out at a school board meeting and was arrested and taken to jail. So I didn't have anything like that, but I did have some hate land back on my head. But at the end of the day, the parents sort of won because so many of us stood up. The school board had to kind of back down from their more extreme position. And when when the activists complained about that, um, they said, you know, the parents don't want this. They don't want this in the classroom. And so it's always helpful for school boards to hear from people because then they can point to them and say, look, this group does not want what you're proposing. And that they're the majority. And so um, this was the type of thing that was going on in 1994. I did have one young young man contact me and come over and interview, interview me for his publication, which was um, a gay and lesbian publication. And he was earnest and he wanted to know my true views. And in my speech, I had said, you know, that one of the school board members at a previous meeting had said that there ain't no sexual orientation that's illegal. So I quoted him saying that. And I said, are we going to welcome child molesters into our elementary schools to teach the children? And at the time, there had been a teacher in the, in the media who had been arrested for molesting little girls in his classroom. I think it was a first grade teacher. So it was a big public issue in the community anyway. And, and then I said, are we going to invite those who practice bestiality to bring the family pet in and demonstrate to our children their form of sexuality? And while I acknowledge that this was extreme hyperbole, these things are not unheard of. There are European textbooks for children that show all sorts of bestiality practices as normal and healthy. And so America tends to be 10 to 20 years uh, past our, our European brethren in our curriculums. So to say that, you know, in a hyperbolic way was not completely out of the realm of what was possible because it is happening in other places. And so um, this young man was very interested in talking to me. And, you know, he said, we're not recruiting children to our lifestyle. We're not doing that. He was very defensive. And I said, well, whether you are or not, you know, we have concerns about that. Again, this is 28 years ago. And so in the years since, well, I haven't necessarily been a very outspoken education activist. I have followed it closely. And when the Common Core was set up by the Obama administration and kind of slipped in the back door to so many of our states and communities, um, and in my home district here in St. Vrain, Colorado, our district had won the race to the top money. And what that meant was um, Obama's promising millions of dollars to those who implemented these things the fastest. And because of the money that, that our district won, every child in our district was handed an iPad mini. 
with all of the curriculums already embedded on it. And our son was in middle school at the time, our youngest son, and got one of these iPads. And when, when the curriculum's on the computer, it is really hard for the parents to monitor what their kids are being taught. Um, few parents have the time to get on that iPad and, and read what the social studies class is teaching or the history class or what have you. But during COVID, when the kids were all at home, parents were much more clued in to what was being taught to their little ones. And it is these little ones, the kindergarten, elementary age children that I am the most concerned about because it felt like they were being targeted by those with an agenda to brainwash them away from their parents and grandparents' moral values. And so most people can agree that the little ones should be protected. Children eight and under should not even be openly discussing heterosexual sex with anyone except their parents. And to say that we're going to toss all of these other sexual identities into the mix, to say this is normal and good, and here's an illustration of what it looks like, and, you know, this is where parents are just losing it. I have a child here who's pure and innocent, and I'm trying to protect them. And I do not want anyone coming into the classroom and teaching them their moral values at the expense of my child being pulled away from my moral values. It's the ultimate indignation. And so these are the types of things that we're speaking up about and saying enough. I was thrilled to watch President Trump's speech last night at the rally in Iowa. So he specifically said, Critical race theory is going to go. Diversity, equity, and inclusion curriculums are going to go. We're going to teach our people to love their nation and to reverence the flag. And it was music to my ears because I feel like I've been involved in this education battle now for a solid 30 years. I'm disgusted at what's happened with so many of our young people being taught lifestyles and nudged and bullied and pressured into believing it's their fault that there's problems. And if they will change their gender, if they will change their identity, then all of the problems of every, all their friends and peers will just magically melt away and we'll all just get along. And I shared the, in my speech, I shared the testimonial from a young girl who as a teenager transitioned to male. And then I'll just let you hear her story. It was so heart wrenching. So here's my speech followed by her testimonial. To the Colorado State Board of Education from Jenny Hatch, Longmont, Colorado. I am the fair chapter leader for Boulder County and a mother of five. Our grandchildren recently started arriving and it is for their generation that I continue as an education activist, agitating for solid academics, traditional math, and real phonics. Parental rights are sacred. Young parents need to know that they can comfortably send their elementary age children to our public schools without being undermined with curriculum designed to seduce young minds into believing they are bad or should feel guilty about their heritage, religion, or nationality. At the October State School Board meeting, the public comments illustrated the passion being generated 
by a recent decision to protect young children from the fourth grade and under from being taught during social studies class about the many issues currently being debated by adults in our American culture over race and gender. Sesame Street decided to begin grooming children by normalizing alternative lifestyles when it started in 1968. The attempts to brainwash the preschoolers with transgender story time at the library also illustrate how certain groups desire to ma manipulate toddlers into questioning the religious and moral values of their parents and grandparents. Those agitating for children questioning their sexuality have been successful and the huge numbers of children under the age of 18 choosing to use drugs and surgery to permanently transition has been staggering. Recently, a new group of activists has started to speak up and share powerful testimony about the support they received while struggling through their teen years. These voices of those who detransitioned back to their original gender should be the loudest and most authentic in our current conversations. The fact that they are being censored, blacklisted, shunned, and sent death threats is the biggest stain on our current debate over how to support our and students. I really thought transitioning was going to fix everything. My period stopped, facial hair grew. Pretty soon I was passing as male. At first I was elated, but my mental health did not improve. I became more suicidal, more unstable, and the anxiety became debilitating. The testosterone was never questioned as a contributing factor to my increasing instability. I was in and out of mental hospitals six times while being affirmed as male and supported in my decision to transition by my doctor, psychiatrist, immediate family, and even church. I was also diagnosed with complex PTSD and OCD during this time. I desperately wanted top surgery and a hysterectomy, but couldn't afford them. After a serious suicide attempt in February of 2018, I realized that just changing my appearance was not going to take away the pain. So I started working really hard in therapy, but I still believed I was male. A year later in 2019, I had a life-changing encounter with Jesus and began to find deep healing and peace within myself. After nearly four years of being on testosterone, I decided to detransition and accept my womanhood. My mental health improved exponentially. I'm no longer in therapy, nor even on mental health medication. I have not been suicidal or hospitalized since stopping testosterone. Three years later, my menstrual cycle has still been irregular. I still have to shave my face daily, and I struggle with hormonal acne. I'm truly grateful I never got surgery because now I'm happily married and 28 weeks pregnant. But if I had gotten surgeries that I so desperately wanted as a teenager, that would have stolen this future from me. So I'm asking the board to create a rule that makes it unethical for doctors to prescribe these hormone treatments for people under the age of 18 and surgeries under the age of 21. Thank you. I look forward to the decision that will determine how the littlest ones in our state are protected and sheltered while being taught social studies focused on our differences and diversity or an elementary education that celebrates our common humanity. I hope humanity wins. Jenny Marie Hatch, Longmont. So that was the end of my speech. And one of the things that I was accused of in the article in the Daily Camera back in the day is that I was a mother who was adamantly against diversity. 
One of the questions that nobody bothered to ask is, why are you against diversity? Well, I'll tell you why. I grew up in Detroit in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And if you don't know it, Detroit is one of the most balkanized places in the world, meaning you have little cloisters of identity in various communities. Dearborn is Muslim. Downtown Detroit is Black. Hamtramck is Polish. Mexican Village. Southfield is Jewish. Bloomfield Hills is waspy white Catholic. I mean, this is the most balkanized place in, in America today, I still believe. And because that was the way I grew up, looking at people as their tribe, looking at people as their identity, I lost out on the common humanity that we all share. Because when you look at someone and say, oh, that's so-and-so, and I'll just use Jews as an example. We had a term called Japs, and it was Jewish American princess. And it was an insult, but in some circles, it was kind of like a, hey, this is who you are, and it was fun. Oh, she's a Jap. She's a Jewish American princess. Now, none of us used that term back in the 80s, thought of ourselves as bigots or haters. It was just how we identified people. And I don't think that I'm a racist, but I've been told over and over as an adult that because I'm a Christian, because I'm a Mormon, that I'm some sort of a hater and a bigot and a racist. And I'm not. I love people. When I was in school, especially middle school, my goal was to be friends with everyone and try to move away from that identitarian thing. We don't all have to be locked away in our tribes friends with just people who look like us or who believe like us. We can be friends with everyone. And so as a teenager, I recognized the problem that that cloistering away and that tribalism caused in the overall culture. And so I set a goal to just be friends with everyone. When I went to BYU as a freshman, my goal was to make a new friend every day. And I didn't care anything about their background. I didn't care if they were Mormon or not. And yes, there are people who are not members of the faith who went to BYU. I tried to seek out those people and befriend them. I tried to be friends with everyone. And I've continued to try to do that for my whole life. So because this is my belief, this is one of my core beliefs that we are all equal in God's eyes. We're all his children. I didn't want my children to be taught to think of people as their identity. I wanted them to think of them as people. And so as my children grew up in the schools and church and community, I encouraged them to be friends with everyone. I didn't care if their friends had two moms. I didn't care if their friends identified as gay. I was a little bit concerned about my daughters going to slumber parties where there were known lesbians, knowing that these certain situations, that is where young girls are often seduced into lesbianism is at slumber parties. So I was very concerned about that. As a teenager, a couple of the slumber parties I went to, girls got pregnant because after the parents went to bed, the boyfriends showed up and they were having sex all night. And two of my friends got pregnant at these slumber parties. So I was also concerned about that. But, you know, in teaching my values, my sexual moral values to my children, the goal was to come up with a group of kids who recognized that their virginity was sacred, holding out their love for a true partner, a true love of their life, an eternal love, was worth protecting. And this is where we put our energies as a husband and wife and parents to these five kids, teaching our moral values. You will live a happier life 
if you will hold on to your virginity until marriage and then devote yourself, body and soul, to your spouse. Per the biblical charge, you know, leave your father and mother, go with your husband and wife and become one flesh, faithful to each other, cleaving to each other through, through the vicissitudes and ups and downs of mortality. You will have a happier life if you choose to live this way. That is what we taught our kids. I didn't care what other people were teaching their kids. You know, if you have a moral value or a moral position, great. Teach it to your kids. I'm not going to come into your home or your child's classroom and try and impose my moral values on you. These are mine. And I claim the parental right to teach my moral values to my children and try to influence my grandchildren as much as I can because they're mine. And when President Trump again last night was talking about parental rights and how he felt so sad that we even had to talk about parental rights and how we need to have these rights upheld, even in the courts. Again, music to my ears, because I see parental rights being slashed and burned all over the world as parents are dealt with by the powers that be, by nanny states who are all too willing to step in and interfere in their lives. That This is what my show here on Colin is devoted to, is parental rights and the goal of all of us having healthier families. So I feel incredibly passionate about the education issue, and I'm looking for people to interview who would like to share their stories, who would like to share their instances of standing up publicly to this behemoth that wants to step into our world and presume to educate and feed and medicate our children without our permission. Oh, but mom and dad, you get to pay all the bills. Or if you can't pay your bills, we'll just have the taxpayers pay for it because we know it's best. Oh, and by the way, we're being funded and lobbied and promoted by 20 different multinational corporations who stand to make lots and lots of money off of the feeding and educating and medicating of your kids. And you don't have anything to say about it. And if you do say something, we're going to call you a racist and cancel you from social media. So sit down, shut up, big mouth in Colorado. We don't want to hear what you have to say. You know, this has been my reality for a long time. So if you know someone who has a story to share, please do not hesitate to have them contact me. I'm interested in sharing stories on all levels of parental rights. And today the education issue is front and center. I'm really curious to see how the board votes because three state board of education slots are up for a vote next week. And we could get three new conservative members on our board. And these board members who are potentially leaving could lock in place these social security standards for the next six years. They will not be touchable by anybody. And so I hope they do the right thing. I hope they just say, you know what? We're going to protect these kindergartners through fourth graders and say that we will not presume to try to mess with their precious little minds on these issues that even adults in our community are grappling with right now. So I will be watching and waiting to see what they choose. I believe thousands of parents will flee Colorado schools if they uh, they do the wrong thing. So this is Jenny Hatch, Healthy Families Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you just have a wonderful week.